0: Welcome to the Waking Up Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay, there's been a lot going on. Does anyone else feel like this year has been going fast? (laughs) We're about six weeks into it. Feels like six months. Feels like Trump has been president for six months. Jesus. Uh, In any case, I am doing an AMA podcast today. So I went out to all of you on Twitter and Facebook, and i got to say, whenever I do this, the response is just hugely gratifying and overwhelming. I get, uh, no exaggeration, thousands of questions whenever I go out to you guys. So um, thank you for that. Needless to say, I can only answer a tiny fraction of them, uh, but many of you hit similar topics uh, in similar ways. So. I'm aggregating a fair amount here. Uh, Also recovering from a cold. Hopefully that won't play too much havoc with your um, listening pleasure. And I don't mention anyone's names when I do Q and As like this because, again, I do aggregate questions. I occasionally reword them a little bit to make them more on point. Uh, So if if you asked any of these, you will no doubt recognize your handiwork, but Sorry not to give you credit, because I can't really keep track of, of uh, how I change things here. And also, I can only assume that some of you actually want to remain anonymous, and given that I haven't communicated with you directly about this, I will err on the side of safety. Uh, before I get to the questions, I will do some brief housekeeping. Just to um, put all of this in context, I just did Bill Maher's show, and um, you can see the response to that playing out online. I felt that interview was a, a bit of a tightrope walk, given the previous time I'd been on the show. Uh, and I, I'm reasonably satisfied that the, the whole story came out in those 12 minutes. So um, uh, that's good. Of course, that doesn't prevent uh, people from the left and the right going crazy in response to it. And it, it's it's really been instructive to see that there's virtually no space to occupy between the extreme left and the extreme right that doesn't get you attacked by both sides on this issue. By virtue of that conversation, I am getting attacked as a Islamist shill and a racist xenophobe. It's incredible. There is no place. It is, it is not even a razor's edge where you can stand uh, to make sense on this issue. At the moment. So, in any case, if you've missed that, you can see that on my blog. It's it's on YouTube. I've embedded it on my blog. And thanks to Bill for having me on. It was um, it's always good to talk to him. I was also just in New York with Majid Nawaz, and we finished filming this documentary on our collaboration. I don't know when that's coming out, but uh, I will keep you all apprised of that. And it was uh, great to see Majid again face to face. It's always instructive in the aftermath of an interview like the, the one I did with Bill to receive Majid's hate mail, which is just mind-boggling. Uh, I mean, the, the, the self-proclaimed moderates who attack Majid and Ayan for their bigotry, it just proves how far we have to go. I just noticed, for instance, among the usual suspects, And it really is the usual suspects. Uh, There's Bina Shah, who is a columnist for the New York Times and didn't like my conversation with Bill at all. And she uh, disavows Majid and Ayan and then says that she loves reformers like Tariq Ramadan. This is the Tariq Ramadan who, when asked whether stoning women for adultery uh, was okay, he recommended that there be a moratorium on it. We, we just pause this edict for a while so that we can consider its wisdom. That's how far he would go. Um, it's unbelievable. This woman writes for the New York Times. So if nothing else, it proves this is a necessary conversation. And again, to clarify, and I said this in my interview with Bill, I don't think I'm going to reform Islam. That is obvious. I am urging Muslims to reform Islam uh, and to speak honestly about the need for reform. Uh, And if you think reform need go no further than a moratorium on stoning women to death for adultery, your theocracy is showing. uh, And the fact that you could be that confused as a woman New York Times columnist uh, is fairly jaw-dropping. Okay, first question. Any update on the project manager position? Uh, many questions of this sort came in. Yes, we are still in process over here. There have been over 900 applications at this point. Uh, so closing in on 1,000, I actually need this position filled in order to vet the applicants, unfortunately. But uh, I, I do have some help with the vetting. In fact, I'm not doing the first round Uh, I will see only the final 50 or so. But um, yeah, there's been a lot of interest, and I look forward to hiring that person. That would be very helpful. Question two, Uh, many questions on my conversation with Jordan Peterson. Jordan is the clinical psychologist I had on two podcasts back, and we got bogged down in a conversation about scientific epistemology on the question of truth. Um. Many listeners seem confused about my reasons for not accepting Peterson's version of truth, which amounted to some odd form of pragmatism pegged to our ultimate survival as a species. If you recall, according to Peterson, a claim is true if it helps us survive, and false or not true enough if it doesn't. I see so much wrong with this claim that it was really hard to know where to begin, and um well, I don't think I said this in the podcast, one wonders whether this claim applies to itself. You know, is this claim about truth only true if it helps us survive? And what if it doesn't? Does it then bite its own tail and just disappear? Do you see the problem there? But I went round and round with Peterson for two hours on this, and this prevented us from getting into topics that listeners really wanted us to explore. Again, that he was my most requested podcast guest ever. Now, Some of Peterson's fans blamed me for this entirely, and they were alleging mostly that I'm a materialist and that I'm somehow dogmatically opposed to the idea that mind might play some role in defining reality or or parts of it. But that's just not true, and it's not even relevant as far as I can see, even if it were true. if, If mind helps create reality... I would just claim that we can stand outside those facts as well and say they are true whether or not anyone knows them, right? So for instance, if if it's true to say that the moon really isn't there unless someone is looking at it, which is to say consciousness is, is somehow constitutive of its being in reality, well that fact about the mind's power would be true whether or not any of us know about it or understand it, right? So this, you can still get a realistic picture of truth being as spooky as you want about the mind. All I was arguing for was that there are facts of the matter whether or not anyone understands them, and some of these facts have nothing to do with the survival of the species. Now, some other defenders of Peterson have argued that i just don't understand pragmatism okay but that's not true either as far as i can tell right, prag- pragmatism in its usual form has to make sense of the kinds of challenges i was posing to peterson okay but peterson's version wasn't doing that it's not it, pragmatism isn't just predicated on survival it's predicated on what works in conversation what actually conserves the data what makes our Statements about the world seem to cohere. And the kinds of statements that square with our experience, the kinds that, that become predictive of future experience scientifically, all of that is what it means to be pragmatic in the usual sense. Most of that has nothing to do with the survival of the species. So again, a statements about prime numbers can be understood pragmatically. When I make a claim that there is a, there is a prime number higher than any we have represented. Unfortunately, that's actually a paradox to say that there's a prime number larger than any we have represented is, in fact, to represent it. But leaving that aside, right, let's talk about explicitly representing it, which is to say it hasn't been discovered yet. There are different ways to think about that being true, but a pragmatic way is just to say, well, it certainly seems true. Those kinds of statements function and conserve the experience of what it's like to be us continually discovering new prime numbers or seeming to discover them uh, it doesn't mean that there is a a reality outside of our conversation where prime numbers really exist that's what the pragmatist wants to say now of course the mathematical idealist wants to say that there is some realm of number on some level uh, to be discovered by sentient beings like ourselves and it exists In some sense, whether or not we discover it. This is the kind of thing I got into with Max Tegmark, who seems to be fairly idealistic on this topic. In any case, normal pragmatism can skate across that thin ice fairly elegantly, if not persuasively, but a pragmatism that suggests that every statement about prime numbers must be resolved in terms of the survival of apes like ourselves, that doesn't make any sense, but I couldn't seem to get Peterson to acknowledge that, and most of you, the vast majority of you, it seems to me, thought I made that case fairly well, and therefore you agreed with me that Peterson's concept of truth was pretty wacky, or at least that he wasn't communicating it well, but many of you still faulted me as a podcast host for not being gracious enough to just move on to other topics once we reach that impasse. Now, I totally understand that criticism, and I even, I think, anticipated it at some point in the podcast, and I might have even learned something from it. We'll see. We'll see, we'll see what I'm like next time I get bogged down like that with a guest. But the truth is, I, I'm not a normal podcast host. I view these exchanges as conversations, not really as interviews, though occasionally It does play out a little bit like an interview, but um, I'm usually trying to have a conversation and I'm trying to pressure test my own views and refine my own understanding of the world. So, So if the person I'm talking to isn't making any sense, at least to me, I really want to get to the bottom of what the problem is. And now this is necessarily intrusive because on many of these points, really one of us has to be wrong or at least confused and in this case that the disagreement was so fundamental and i knew jordan wanted to move on to topics like the existence of jungian archetypes for instance and i just couldn't see how we were going to make sense on that topic if we couldn't agree about what it means to say that something is true right i mean how do you distinguish fact from fantasy uh, we couldn't converge there Really, at all, and the next topics on the menu were things like archetypes and mythology and the reality of Christian doctrine, and I and I wanted to get on to those topics because I knew how much our listeners wanted us to get there. I was making increasingly desperate attempts to try to get to some consensus so that we could move on, and this had somewhat the character of my attempting to perform an exorcism. Which didn't work. It was like it was like that scene in The Exorcist when Max von Sydow does his whole spiel in Latin, and still winds up with a face full of green vomit. Anyway, at the end of that podcast, those of you who heard it know if you got to the end, uh, I put it out to all of you to crowdsource the postmortem on it, to tell us what happened, and to decide whether we should go forward and have a second conversation. On other topics. And uh, I put out a poll on Twitter, uh, which about 30,000 of you responded to, and 81% of you said, yes, we should have another conversation. Now, I got to think that poll went fairly viral among Jordan's crowd because on my own social media channels, I got a lot of complaints about the conversation, and uh, I'd be very surprised if. 81% of my listeners want to hear Jordan and I go round and round again. But I will take this recommendation seriously. I don't yet know what I'm going to do. It's uh, somewhat amusing and somewhat disconcerting that a fairly frequent criticism from Jordan's crowd seems to be that, that I didn't let the conversation move on because I was afraid that Jordan... Was going to dismantle my atheism, that he was going to say something there that was so powerful or so well reasoned that he would have revealed my doubts about God to be completely bankrupt. I got to say, I'm open to that, but uh, the fact that anyone thinks that is the reason why I didn't move on, um, I got to hope that those of you who are regular listeners to the podcast know me better than that. Anyway, I will I will let you know if Jordan's coming back on. Um, I'm going to have a few more podcast guests in the meantime before I rethink that. I guess the implications of putting it to a vote would be that I would simply do whatever the majority of you say I should do. Um, I'm not sure this is actually a democracy. I may be a little more autocratic than that, but um, I certainly hope Jordan realizes there are no hard feelings. I just, uh, in everything he has said since the podcast, uh, some of which I responded to on my blog, none of that has clarified his position to me. And um, if we do go for a second round, uh, I think we really do have to avoid getting bogged down again the way we did. So I have to figure out some kind of guidelines so that we can actually have a, a conversation that is productive and not excruciating for all of you. So, more on that when I figure it out. Question three. Uh, Many of you asked me about my views on the so-called Muslim ban. I'm just answering this now just to say that I wrote a blog post about it, and then I was on Bill Maher's show to talk about it, and both of those are on my blog. Perhaps I'll just say that in my last meeting with Majid, we spoke about it, and he had a good distinction or a, a reformulation of what is reasonable here, which I fully agree with. I think I said something like it's hard to get away from the logic of some kind of religious test. It is actually relevant uh, once you realize you're looking for jihadists. It is relevant to know whether somebody is a Salafi Muslim, right? Because he would stand more of a chance of being a jihadist than a Unitarian Universalist would. But the the way Majid talks about this we just want to know about people's beliefs and attitudes right we're looking for illiberal beliefs and yes it is true that islam has more than its fair share of people who are fundamentally illiberal at this moment who don't support free speech who think apostates should be killed say but we we are looking for illiberalism of that sort in general and if there's some new cult born tomorrow that produces the same kind of illiberalism, well, then we'd want to stop those people at the border, too, if we could. So a Muslim ban doesn't make any sense, but nor does it make any sense to say you can't ask people detailed questions about their worldview in the process of vetting them. Of course you have to ask people, how would you feel if your daughter married outside your religion, say? And there's a wrong answer to that question. If you say, well, I would cut her head off, we don't want you in the country, right? And we are right not to want you in the country. And it's instructive that there are Muslim organizations that don't want those sorts of questions asked in the vetting process. Of course, as a very common theme with me, this comes down to ideas and beliefs and the degree to which people subscribe to them, because this is the best predictor of what they will do in the world and uh, we care about what people will do and how likely they are to assimilate into our society in a productive way. And we're right to care about those things. So if you want any more on on Trump's executive order and why I don't think it was a good idea, uh, you can see those blog articles and the aforementioned interview with Bill Maher. Next question, Milo at Berkeley, wow. That was amazing. Well, I, I, I guess I will just point out the obvious that that was one of the best things that could have ever happened to Milo in terms of proving his points, both the legitimate and illegitimate ones, and raising his stature, right? I mean, just what a short sighted, idiotic, counterproductive thing to do. And what worries me about this moment politically is that the left seems capable of doing everything wrong in response to the rise of the so-called alt-right and the Trump presidency. This antipathy to free speech, this idea that rioting to prevent a lecture is an example of liberal free speech in action, and that is just so confused and destructive that I'm tempted to say that the left is just irredeemable at this point. That There seems to be so little insight and coming fresh out of my interview with Bill Maher, uh, I I can see this. I mean, there, there are people who have tweeted at me and written to me who heard in my discussion with Bill a horrifying expression of racist, racist, Hatred or are pretending to have heard such a thing. And this kind of judgment is, is again, echoed by the usual suspects on the left. I mean, that, that position is so crazy that I, I just don't know how to interact with it. So it's not an accident that people on the right can't see any way to interact with it. I mean, all I can say is that if I'm a bigot and a racist and a xenophobe, if that's how I appear to you, based on what I said on real time, what words are you going to use for the real bigots and racists and xenophobes? And what I've said before about Milo, Milo is a, at this point, kind of a professional troll, right? I mean, some of his criticism of the left is no doubt sincere, but he's a kind of performance artist. I mean, he's, he's just winding up the left. And, you know, perhaps I've missed it but I haven't seen anything from him that is real racist bigotry. Please take this caveat on board. I have not read all of Milo's stuff uh, or much of it. Maybe there's something I've missed. Feel free to point that out to me. But the Milo I've seen is very far from being a neo-Nazi or someone who is whose attitudes are truly of the right. That's... Probably not an accident. I mean, he's flamboyantly gay and half Jewish, I believe. I don't know how right wing he could be in the end. But this response at Berkeley wouldn't even be warranted if he was actually a KKK member. Again, the moment you're using violence to prevent someone from speaking, you are on the wrong side of the argument by definition. How is that not obvious on the left at this moment? You're going to, what, burn down your own university to prevent someone from expressing views that you could otherwise just criticize? All of these protests were seen in response to right-wing or quasi-right-wing speakers being invited to college campuses by, I'm sure, the, the campus Republicans. These are so uncivil and unproductive. And again, this is almost entirely a phenomenon of the left. If you you heard generically that some college campus had erupted in violence because a student mob had prevented a lecture from taking place, and the people who wanted to hear that lecture were spat upon as they tried to enter the hall and finally attacked, you could bet with, what, 99% confidence that this was coming from the left. Now, in the age of Trump, when you really want to be able to say things against creeping right-wing authoritarianism, having an authoritarian anti-free speech movement subsume the left is a disaster politically. But I actually think the left is Irredeemable at this point, and this is why I've begun to use the phrase "the new center." I think we need a new center to our politics. I mean, I don't know how you ever get the people writing for the Intercept or the people on the Young Turks to be reasonable human beings, given what they've done in recent years. And so that's the left as it currently stands. Of course, it's no accident that the Women's March, which otherwise seemed like a great thing was vitiated by its alliance with Linda Sarsour and these closeted and semi-closeted Islamists who have co-opted the women's movement and convinced millions of women, apparently, that the hijab is a sign of women's empowerment. That's fairly mind-boggling, just so there's no confusion on this point. I think you, dear listener, should be free to wear the hijab if you want to. But you should also recognize that most women the world over who are veiled to one or another degree are living that way, not out of choice or certainly not out of what could be considered a free choice. They're living in the context of a community that will treat them like whores or worse if they don't veil themselves, right? That's not the political empowerment of women. And someone like Linda Sarsour, again, one of the principal organizers of the Women's March, is a theocrat who lies about this, who attacks Ayon Hirsi Ali. This is how the left will die, by, on the basis of its own moral relativism, locking arms with Islamism and stealth theocracy, uh, which is what it has done. I mean, just just as you know, if you travel too far right on the political spectrum, you will encounter the most repulsive the most callous, the most authoritarian attitudes, I think you should know that if you travel too far left, you will encounter a kind of moral confusion and identity politics that is in its actual application to the world, little better. And I don't, I don't see how that changes at this point. Next question. How do you think we can reasonably expect to break the echo chamber Mentality and social media and online information. Do you think it's possible or do you expect our conversation to grow increasingly factionalized? This is a good question to which I really don't have a good answer apart from my acknowledging that this is a, just a huge problem. This has to be high on everyone's list of problems that. Really could make it hard to maintain our way of life. We're talking about how human beings reach a common understanding of reality, right? How do we get our view of the facts to converge? And how do we get our the moral norms that should guide our behavior to become aligned collectively? And if we're not dealing with the same facts, if my news sources are fake news, according to your own, and vice versa, it is hard to see how we will make any progress. This isn't just about agreeing that climate change is a problem. This is everything. This is the wars we fight, the laws we pass, the research we fund or don't fund. It is everything. There is a difference between truth and lies. There is a difference between real news and fake news. There's a difference between actual conspiracies and imagined ones. And we cannot afford to have hundreds of millions of people in our own society on the wrong side of those epistemological chasms. And we certainly can't afford to have members of our own government on the wrong side of them. As I've said many, many times before, all we have is conversation, right? You have conversation and violence that's how we can influence one another when things really matter and words are insufficient people show up with guns that is the way things are so we have to create the conditions where conversations work and now we are living in an environment where words have become almost totally ineffectual and that this is what has been so harmful i would say about Trump's candidacy and his first few weeks as president, just the degree to which the man lies and the degree to which his supporters do not care, that is one of the most dangerous things to happen in my lifetime politically. There simply has to be a consequence for lying on this level. And the retort from a Trump fan is, well, all politicians lie. No, all politicians don't lie like this. What we are witnessing with Trump and the people around him is something quite new. Even if I grant that all politicians lie a lot, I don't even know if I should grant that. All politicians lie sometimes, say. But even in their lying, they have to endorse the norm of truth-telling. That's what it means to lie successfully in politics, in a former age of the earth, you can't be obviously lying. You can't obviously be repudiating the very norm of honest communication. But what Trump has done, and the people around him have gotten caught in the same vortex, it's almost like a giddy nihilism in politics, right? Where it's just, you just say whatever you want. And it doesn't matter if it's true. Just try to stop me, is the attitude. It's unbelievable. So finally on this point, I would just say that finding ways to span this chasm between people, finding ways where we can reliably influence one another through conversation, based on shared norms of argumentation and self-criticism, That is the operating system we need. That is the only thing that stands between us and chaos. And they're the people who are trying to build that, and they're the people who are trying to tear it down. And now one of those people is president. And again, I I really don't think this is too strong. Trump is, by all appearances, consciously destroying the fabric of civil conversation. And his supporters really don't seem to care. And I'm sure that those of you who support him will think I'm just whinging now in a spirit of partisanship, right? That's why I'm against Trump. I'm a Democrat or I'm a liberal. That's just not the case. Most normal Republican candidates, who I might dislike for a variety of reasons, Marco Rubio or Jeb Bush, or even a quasi-theocrat like Ted Cruz, Would still function within the normal channels of attempting a fact based conversation about the world. Their lies would be normal lies. And when caught, there'd be a penalty to pay. They would lose face. Trump has no face to lose. This is an epistemological potlatch. Do you know what a potlatch is? It's a traditional native practice of. Burning up your wealth, burning up your prized possessions, so as to prove how wealthy you are, right? Look at me. I can burn down my own house. This is a potlatch of civil discourse. Every time Trump speaks, he's saying, I don't have to make sense. I'm too powerful to even have to make sense. That is his message. And half the country, or nearly half, seems to love it. So when he's caught in a lie, he has no face to lose. Trump is chaos. And one of the measures of how bad he seems to me is that I don't even care about the theocrats he has brought to power with him. And there are many of them. You know, he has brought in. Christian fundamentalists to a degree that would have been unthinkable 10 years ago. And 10 years ago, I was spending a lot of time worrying about the rise of the Christian right in this country. Well, it, it has risen under Trump, but honestly, it seems like the least of our problems at this moment. And it's amazing for me to say that, given what it means and might yet mean to have people like Pence and Jeff Sessions and the other Christian fundamentalists in his orbit, empowered in this way. Next question. Are you still giving $3,500 each month from the podcast to the Against Malaria Foundation, as you spoke about in your podcast with Will McCaskill? Uh, Yes. Yes, I'm doing that. That's happening automatically. I'm not continuing to talk about it so as not to wear my philanthropy on my sleeve, but that was the result of my conversation with Will. I, I highly recommend you listen to that podcast because Will McCaskill's fantastic. Um, I just came out of that feeling that um, however, conflicted about, uh, podcast, um, however conflicted I might be about the results of any podcast, however conflicted I might be about the use of my time on any given month, however conflicted I might be around asking listeners to support the podcast, I wanted to know that at minimum I was doing some good in the world. And the value of saving a human life each month really can't be disputed. And $3,500 is still the statistical minimum for what it takes to save a life through the most efficient means, uh, which is still anti-malarial bed nets. So anyway, listen to my conversation with Will, and you may find it as inspiring as I did. Okay, next question. One argument I've heard from someone who believes in God and an afterlife is that, quote, energy can never be destroyed. I assume what is meant by this is that consciousness survives the body, as a soul, perhaps. I think this is nonsense, but I don't really have a good enough comeback for it. What would your response be? Well, it's not a matter of energy so much as it is information and organization when you're talking about minds and even living systems. The difference between a living system and a dead one, is not merely a difference in matter or energy. When you die, you don't suddenly become physically lighter. Actually, when your body begins to cool, you have to become a little lighter because you're losing kinetic energy, but I doubt the effect is measurable. There was actually a doctor at the beginning of the 20th century, I think, named Duncan McDougall, who assumed that The soul must have mass and therefore he weighed people at the moment of death and he claimed to have found that the weight of the human body diminished by something on the order of 21 grams and i think he also did experiments in dogs and found that there was no weight difference and this confirmed the thesis that unlike human beings dogs have no souls right well obviously there's no reason to believe any of this is true But you can sympathize with the good doctor's thinking there. It's really not a question of matter or energy going somewhere else. Nobody thinks that heat energy is the basis of your conscious life. In fact, you're losing heat every moment now. You're just producing more of it. It's not like your mind has migrated out into the environment because some of the molecular energy in your body has. So whatever, whatever consciousness is, whatever its relationship is to the brain, if it is the product of what the brain is doing, it is the product of the organized information processing in the brain. And once that ceases to be organized, once those processes stop, once neurons are no longer firing, once their connections begin to break down, it's not a matter of So much of matter and energy being lost, it's a matter of activity ceasing. Where does a song go when you stop singing? Where does a dance go when you stop dancing? Do they still exist in some way? The distinction between having a mind and not having one, or being alive and being dead, is more like that. It's more like a verb than a noun. Living bodies do things that dead bodies don't. And when they stop doing those things, they're dead. Systems that process information and could be the basis of minds are doing things that disorganized systems don't. And when they become disorganized, they cease to do those things. So this is a bad analogy, this idea that The conscious mind is energy, and energy can't be destroyed. Energy can be converted into forms that are no longer useful, where it can no longer do work, where it contains no more information. This is entropy. And we are fighting entropy every moment of our lives. And when we die, entropy wins. If you think in terms of process... It's a little easier to see that processes can become disordered and disrupted, right? And finally cease. So this is not where I would put my hopes for immortality. Uh, Next question. What would you say to someone who claims that the humanities are an unnecessary waste of money because they have no immediate practical purpose and thus should not be taught at universities or given funds for research? I refer to subjects such as history, sociology, or philosophy. Well, while I'm a huge fan of the sciences, obviously, and also a critic of some of the ideological trends in the humanities, much of the derangement of the left on college campuses that I've spoken about could be laid at the doorsteps of many of the departments in the humanities. But speaking generally, there's much more to living a life worth living and having a mind worth having than just understanding the world scientifically or producing better technology. The humanities are absolutely central to intellectual life and ethical life. And while there really isn't an infinite amount to learn, and I, and I wish I had studied some things differently as an undergraduate, I, I'm very happy to have done my undergraduate degree in philosophy, because it gets you thinking and arguing clearly about more or less everything, or at least potentially can do that. And I think that's extremely important. So I I don't, you know, while it's not obvious what the jobs are for most people coming out of a philosophy degree, uh, when people ask me whether I recommend a degree in philosophy, I, I certainly do. Personally, I found it incredibly useful. I'm sure there are some degrees in the humanities that I wouldn't say that about. Uh, there's a lot of truth and beauty to be found almost everywhere. No, whatever you're studying should be equipping you to have a civil conversation with other points of view. This is the high wire act that we all have to aspire to again and again. It's not to say we're not going to fall off the wire, but we should always want to get back on. Whether you're studying sociology or Black history or women's studies or whatever it is, reasoned conversation based on facts rather than mere feelings has to be the the wire you attempt to stay on. If your part of the university is just becoming an outrage machine, there's something wrong with your university, not necessarily the subject matter. No doubt there are some subjects that have become a kind of caricature of everything that's potentially wrong with the humanities. I don't think that is actually intrinsic to the subject. I'm fairly confident that there is a way to have a women's studies department that doesn't become a reductio ad absurdum of everything on the left. But if your foundational philosophy in that department is that there is no biological difference between men and women as a matter of principle, well then, obviously you're going to have a problem. This is where facts come in. A uterus being perhaps the first to consider. Next question. I'd like to hear your thoughts about the ethics of the anti-aging movement led by organizations such as the SENS Foundation, Human Longevity, Inc., and so on. Well, I think aging is a problem. I think that more and more every day. And... It would be nice if there was something we could do about it. No doubt, the fact that this is controversial in some circles is interesting. I think um, Aubrey de Grey has done a lot of very useful work on that point. I'm not speaking so much about his his argument that aging is a solvable engineering problem and should be viewed as a kind of master disease that needs to be cured above all others. I I, I think I'm kind of agnostic on that point. It seems reasonable to me, but I'm thinking more of the kinds of ethical arguments he's made in, uh, I think, a few TED Talks now. And in his book, people have this intuition, which seems a faulty one, that there's something terribly selfish about not wanting to die. That is, ever. There's something disreputable about aspiring to cheat death permanently, right? So They support curing cancer, right? That's a good thing. They support curing heart disease. uh, That would be a good thing. They would support curing Alzheimer's, right? That would be a good thing. You can make the list of diseases as long as you want and they're for it. But if you add to that list aging itself, right? Which is part and parcel of all of these problems. Many people seem to think, well, no, no, that is a moral failure to accept mortality. That is a defect of character. That is a kind of selfishness that we should repudiate. We have a moral obligation to cede the stage to future generations. I don't get that, and and Aubrey de Grey certainly doesn't get that, and he manages to lampoon that and, and, and show the the internal contradictions to that pretty well in his talk. So I recommend those to you. Yeah, it seems only natural to want to solve this problem. And I think you really can make a credible case that we should expect to at some point. There are only so many different ways to die. There are only so many different ways for the body to degrade and cease to function as well as it did yesterday. And with respect to aging itself, there are really only seven things that happen on Aubrey's account. And it seems reasonable to expect that at some point we could figure out how to engineer changes in the human body or develop therapies that would allow us to continue to repair ourselves. Now, this would obviously be a very different world, and there are obvious ethical concerns about wealth inequality being the doorway to kind of death inequality. No doubt these treatments would initially be very expensive. It would also make death by other forms of bad luck uh, that much more poignant. Imagine if we had solved aging as a problem. We've completely cracked the code of DNA repair. You know, there's no cancer anymore. We can keep our brains healthy indefinitely. No reason at all for you not to expect to live a thousand years, except it's still possible to get run over by a bus, right? So just think of how much more depressing it would be to be cut down in the prime of your life when the prime of your life could be a thousand years long. There are other problems to worry about. There's overpopulation. There's a decision not to have kids because of that. But if we're starting to colonize the rest of the solar system and push out toward the stars, who knows if overpopulation would really become a problem under those conditions? Against those questions, you have to put the prospect of our becoming more and more knowledgeable and wiser. I mean, imagine how good a person you could become in a thousand years. Also, I think not having to take death for granted in quite the same way would weaken the hold that religion has on. The human mind. And we would begin to see that, yeah, there really is an opportunity here. In fact, the only opportunity we can be sure of to make human life and human consciousness as beautiful and profound as possible. And that opportunity would be more compelling to most people, I think, if our mortality weren't guaranteed. The fact that you can be more or less certain you will die within a century, no matter what you do no matter how you live, that seems to justify the kind of nihilism and otherworldliness that vitiates so much ethical or quasi-ethical thinking. It seems to me that people have terrible intuitions about right and wrong and about how they should live in this world based on either the notion that nothing really matters because it all comes to an end, or the notion that there's a much better place to get to after death. And curing aging would create a circumstance here where people could reasonably expect to have to live with the consequences of human behavior, you know, both our successes and failures, for a much longer time and therefore be motivated to solve problems that have a time horizon of many decades and even centuries. I mean, this is what's so difficult about a problem like climate change. Even for those who accept that it is, in fact, a problem it's hard to be motivated by it. And even having kids is somehow not enough. So I don't know. Who knows if we will get there? I'm not especially skeptical that we will, but I'm, not, um, I'm certainly not expecting to live a thousand years. I should, I should probably just have Aubrey de Grey on the podcast at some point because he's, he's a very interesting guy. But um, he talks about having reached escape velocity at this point, And he thinks that some people now alive will in fact live for centuries, if not longer, because they will they're part of the the cohort that has achieved escape velocity so that the improvements that will come in life extension within their lifetime will extend their lives long enough so that they can be around for the next wave of improvements. There'll be a breakthrough tomorrow, say, that will add a reliable twenty years to human life, right? And if and if you're young enough now, those twenty years will be enough to keep you around until we have a breakthrough that adds 40 more years to human life. And if you were young enough when that breakthrough came, you're going to be around for the next for the extra century update, and so it will go. And again, all of this makes a bus accident or an arrow to the head all the more poignant. Uh, presumably, there'll still be such a thing as death under the conditions of having solved the problem of aging, but um, this remains to be seen. Next question. Have you read the criticisms on the cogito? You seem pretty obsessed with the fact that one can't argue with the existence of consciousness. Is consciousness really the best choice for an irrefutable proof? So he's referring to Descartes' famous statement, cogito ergo sum, which is usually translated as, I think, therefore I am. And there are a few different ways of reading that line. I've always taken him to mean thinking is somehow Primary, but he could have meant, and and I think a few subsequent statements from him suggested that it's really just the existence of subjectivity, in essence, consciousness that he meant. So, obviously, I don't think thinking is primary. If you're familiar with what I've said about the nature of the self and how its illusoriness can be discovered through meditation, I don't think the the subject or the sense of I is primary. Uh, But I do think consciousness is primary, not ontologically but epistemologically. The fact that things seem a certain way is the first fact, and you are doubting it, you are wondering whether or not it it itself may be an illusion. That is just more evidence of it, right? And I, I actually can't understand the claims made by people who profess to doubt that. The claim that consciousness might be an illusion just makes absolutely no sense to me. Whereas the claim that anything else may be an illusion is perfectly intelligible. The universe may be an illusion. This may all be a dream. I may be radically confused about everything, and yet there is this fact that something seems to be happening in this moment. That is just the fact of consciousness again that's not to prejudge any of the questions with respect to how consciousness arises in this universe or the relationship between mind and matter all of that still remains to be figured out to be under the sway of an illusion about anything demonstrates the reality of consciousness as much as any veridical perception would or any clear understanding would so this is one of those things where i just can't i can't get behind consciousness. That's not to say that the universe is made of consciousness or that consciousness isn't the product of a brain. If you want more of my thinking on that, you have to either read Waking Up or download the talk I gave, which is on the homepage of my website on that topic. Next question. Sam, I am with you on the issue of Islamism and the effort to empower reformist Muslims and also about how liberals have paradoxically ignored all the anti-progressive views of much of the muslim world etc that said i'm curious how you would envision the quote conversation unfolding if suddenly liberals woke up to understand all the rational criticisms of islam would having a rational conversation about islam still empower islamists the same way that trump style rhetoric would this is a good question because certainly this is the fear right that any honesty on this point is just as provocative as bigotry. And it's obviously indistinguishable from bigotry for many people. Again, I I come back to the primacy of conversation here. All we have is conversation or violence, conversation or coercion on some level. And we can lie about this. We can delude ourselves about it. We could be taken in by the lies of others. But at a certain point, we need to honestly talk about people's actual beliefs and their consequences, people's actual goals and the, and the efforts they're making to realize them. I think it's certainly the case that some percentage of the Muslim world is not reachable by conversation, right? We have to talk about the consequences of that being the case, because that, that is the foundation for violent conflict. And these people tell us who they are. ISIS tells us that they're not reachable by conversation. They tell us every way they can. There's nothing you can say to change what we think is true, how we want to live in light of those beliefs, and what we are attempting to do to you who don't share our beliefs. They have advertised their immunity to conversation as eloquently as they possibly can. So that's, that's where the guns come out. I don't see an alternative to that. Uh, but the crucial war of ideas to win is the war of ideas that is a civil war of ideas in the Muslim community. And this is not just in the Middle East, this is everywhere. A majority of Muslims have to agree that these ancient doctrines regarding blasphemy and apostasy and martyrdom and jihad and female chastity and all the rest, all of these have to be reformed in light of 21st century secular liberal values. And if not, if they can't agree on that, we will continually have conflict because those values, the seventh century version of those values are incompatible with a universal conception of human rights, right, or real political equality between the sexes, or tolerance of gay and lesbian rights, or freedom of speech. And these are core values of Western civilization at this point. Free speech above all, and for good reason, because as I said somewhere recently, free speech really is the master value. Free speech is the only thing that allows us to improve our values. If we can't talk about reality because certain topics are taboo, we can't correct our view of reality through conversation. This is just on its face dangerous. Traditional Islam is hostile to these values. That should be obvious. And when I say traditional Islam, I mean jihadism, Islamism, and much that passes for mainstream conservative Islam. It's not just the guys on the monkey bars in those terrorist training videos. We're talking about anyone who thinks a novelist should be put to death for saying something defamatory about the Prophet Muhammad. If you are on the wrong side of that particular controversy, you have prepared the ground for violent conflict in an open society. The only way to defend our open societies and to keep them open is to win a war of ideas with enough of those people, at minimum to have our conversation about human rights and free speech be sufficiently intrusive so that we claim the next generation of kids for our side. Our education system has to be good enough so that no matter how crazy the parents are, the kids don't become the sort of people who want cartoonists killed or gays thrown off of rooftops. All of this could be accomplished in a single generation if we could only get through to the next generation of kids. This is why keeping theocracy and moral relativism out of our education system is important. I think that's all I have on that topic. Next question. How much of morality, in your view, do we inherit from evolution? For example, it seems to me that our moral intuitions regarding a relationship between a parent and a child are shaped partly by the fact that we tend, as mammals, only to have children in small numbers. Hypothetically, if we were to meet a race of aliens who'd evolve from something like squids or frogs that just dump out offspring in large numbers and leave them to fend for themselves. Seems like they'd harbor very different ethical intuitions about the prospect of raising children. Well, this is a very good question. And uh, yeah, I fully agree with what is implied here. Much of what seems morally salient to us and important, much of what we find disgusting or laudatory in in the behavior of other people, this is purely provincial in biological terms. I think it was E.O. Wilson who once said that if termites were as intelligent as we are, they would think it was extraordinarily important, morally and politically, to exchange feces with one another upon greeting, something like that. I forgot the details of termite behavior he was using there, but point taken. But you can you can still ask the deeper question, which is really what I view as the the foundation of morality: is that given the contingent facts of Any particular biology? What states of well being are available, both individually and collectively? How good can life be given that your brain is the product of evolutionary changes in the primate line versus some line that moved on from frogs or squids? What states of consciousness are available? What sort of suffering is there to be avoided? And how can you avoid it? And the moment we begin to think about actually changing our neurophysiology, right, or building conscious systems in computers, then the question of what is good reduces for me to what are the best experiences available given where we are and what we are? And how can we move from where we are toward those experiences? And while there may be more than one right answer, To that question, which is to say, there may be multiple peaks available that we could reach. There are clearly many wrong answers. There are many valleys we can descend into that lead nowhere worth going, where people or squids or whatever we are become more and more miserable to no good purpose. And that, if we should do anything, we should avoid. So, yeah, while it's interesting descriptively to think about what is essential. To us in moral terms, and what is just this biological veneer that might be stripped off by changes in the brain. And there's clearly a, a biological and a cultural level to it that we keep encountering in our lives. I mean, you, c- you can see it pretty clearly in your notion of what constitutes food. What is good to eat, right? And what disgusts you? Well, there are certain things you would be disgusted to eat which are really no more disgusting than anything else you eat, but you have been culturally conditioned to consider these things non-food. I'm thinking of things like cats and dogs and rats. You know, I don't know that cats, dogs, and rats don't taste like chicken. Maybe there are reasons why they would be less palatable than some of the animals most people eat, but still, most of us have a visceral reaction to the idea of eating a dog or a rat which, while it's not something that we could imagine overcoming, and we would might view overcoming it as undesirable, we don't want to be comfortable eating dogs and rats. It's pretty easy to see that the wrongness of the practice is historically and culturally contingent in a way that other things about us aren't. It's perhaps a little confusing that I put dogs and rats in the same category here. I mean, You could certainly make the argument that dogs given our history with them and their level of intelligence pose a special problem to eat but you might make the same argument about pigs which are also very intelligent in any case there are things we don't want to eat which other people in other cultures have eaten and you can see that these differences don't run very deep there are moral differences like that marital norms for instance where people from different cultures feel very strongly about certain things and The question to which I think there really is a right answer, or answers that are more right, and answers that are more wrong, is given all of the tools available to us, and given all the resultant experiences available to us, which sorts of practices lead to the most durable forms of human flourishing? And this is why not all heartfelt convictions are equivalent. I have no doubt that a father who's about to commit an honor killing of his daughter based on his belief that she has shamed him and his family. I have no doubt that such a man is convinced of the rightness of his view. But given the consequences in the world, given how limiting that view is on a hundred fronts, it's not equivalent to my finding that behavior abhorrent. Right. There is a more and less enlightened morality on offer here, and we have to keep finding the more enlightened one. But this presupposes that there are things that even the most enlightened of us have yet to be enlightened about. I'm not taking our current cultural norms as definitive. There are things we absolutely could be wrong about and yet feel deeply that they should be as they are. This is my thesis on the topic of moral realism. I think it's possible to not know what you're missing. No doubt there's a a wide range of human experiences and social arrangements and cultures we might build that we are all cognitively and emotionally closed to because we are apes of the sort that we are. And one, one thing that culture does and one thing that the progress of human knowledge does is give us leverage by which we can pry ourselves out of the grip of mere biology, a mere evolutionary imperative. Yes, we all, as social apes, are programmed to feel jealousy, say. But what's beyond jealousy? You know, how good is a marriage based on the norm of jealousy? This is something we can get beyond through culture and conversation. And that way lies progress. And the same analysis extends to tribalism and xenophobia and everything else that is biologically contingent about us. And there's a related question here. Would an AI necessarily acquire a survival instinct if it didn't have an evolutionary history? Well, there are a few arguments that suggest it might, because any goal you give an artificial intelligence would require that it survive in order to complete it. So ensuring its survival is an instrumental goal for any other goal an intelligent system might have. There are some exceptions to this, obviously. If its goal is to faithfully execute what its human designers want, well, if its human designers want to turn it off, I suppose that could supersede its need to stay on. So people are thinking about this. How could you design a system more intelligent than ourselves that would always submit to being turned off? It's easy to see how you could fail to do this without having necessarily programmed into it a survival instinct. Next question. With large portions of society already arguing about what constitutes fake news, how will we handle future technology that makes these lines even more murky? For example, voice-manipulating software or computer-generated facial expressions. In the near future, we may be confronted with situations where we literally can't believe specific video or audio due to this manipulating software. This would also open the door for anyone accused of wrongdoing to deny just about anything thrown in their direction, more so than they do now. How will civilization handle this? Well, this is a real problem. I don't know if you guys have seen the state of the art now, uh, but there is software now which can manipulate facial expressions so that It looks like someone is delivering words they never actually spoke. This still looks fairly crude, at least the versions I've seen, but the audio is basically impeccable to the ear, at least. Maybe there's some way of analyzing it and seeing that it's not, but we are already at the point where someone could take one of my podcasts or any audio recording of a person speaking and match his or her voice to words that the person never spoke. I saw this demonstrated, I believe, at the last TED conference I was at. I don't know what we'd do with that. I guess there's some technological fix for this. I guess some kind of digital watermark related to the blockchain could be attached to any piece of digital media, and so you could see who handled it. Something like that should be possible, I assume, but. Without that, without being able to tell who produced a piece of media, the damage this could do to journalism and to politics and to basic human sanity, it's, um, it's hard to exaggerate. So I'm watching that space with some trepidation. But it will be amusing to hear the podcast where I convert to Islam and apologize to Glenn Greenwald and Reza Aslan for being wrong about everything, and those will be amusing bits of audio. Next question. I've heard you use the term zero-sum game when talking to guests on different subjects. Would you say that letting refugees into our country is not a zero-sum game? I'm trying to get a better understanding of this term and how to use it in debate and conversation. Well, the term zero-sum means that one person's gain is another person's loss, by definition. Most sports, that we like are zero sum there's no possibility of both sides winning if you score a goal on me in soccer or win a game in tennis i am that much closer to losing but most of human collaboration isn't zero sum if you build a better machine and i buy it you have gotten my money which you wanted to do whatever you wanted to do with it but i got a better machine and Society can keep improving itself based on the somewhat competitive, creative efforts of people. But life could, in principle, get better for everyone in that space. Most of what we do, even if there's a competitive aspect to it in society, isn't zero sum. These are positive sum games where where no one is necessarily winning at someone else's expense. If your life gets better, that doesn't mean, by definition, that someone else's life got worse. In fact, if your life is really going to get better, in a better world, you need many other people's lives to get better as well. Otherwise, you're going to be living in a compound with barbed wire on your wall, right, and armed guards at your gate. So anyway, that's, that's the concept of zero-sum. Generally speaking, it's nice to not be in a zero-sum situation. And so, no, I don't think refugees coming to the US is a zero sum situation because, given appropriate vetting of these people, they make our society better ultimately and the world better. I think this is generally true for a variety of reasons. And this would only be zero sum if every refugee coming into our country made our country worse simply stole our money, helped degrade our infrastructure and contributed nothing useful to our society. So if that were the situation, that would be zero sum. Paul Bloom's position on empathy has not received any pushback from you. Why? I would have thought you might have had some probing questions at least. While all his reasoning and examples make perfect sense, his overall conclusion appears to go too far. The Darwinian empathy algorithm is clearly flawed as are many Darwinian algorithms. However, why can't we use reason to combat these flaws? Why can't we develop, quote, rational empathy? Dumping empathy for compassion feels like a leap too far. Well, I think compassion is just this rational empathy, and I think Paul thinks that too. And I don't think Paul is against empathy across the board. We we want the capacity for empathy if for no other reason it's fun, right? It, it's what makes watching a movie a satisfying experience. It's what allows for a vicarious experience of fictional characters. You wouldn't feel anything watching a movie or reading a book if you couldn't feel empathy. So you want to be able to access this state for that reason alone, but you also want it in your social relationships. You just don't want to be deluded by it. So I don't I never take Paul. As saying that we don't want any empathy at all. And what I think he means by compassion is having an appropriate level of empathy, truly guided by a rational understanding of the consequences of actions in the world. You want to be aware of where the greatest harms are being committed, and you want to be able to prioritize mitigating that suffering. So I basically agree with him. That's why I haven't. Push back harder than I have. I may be misunderstanding him, but having had him on the podcast three times, I think I have a pretty good sense of how he thinks about these things. I'm afraid to say my cold is now getting the better of me, so I'm going to make this the final question. As luck would have it, it has to do with President Trump. Are you open to doing a podcast with someone who voted for Trump? Uh, yeah, I am, actually. And I've been trying to do that podcast. I am actually hoping to get Peter Thiel. On the podcast, which could be interesting for a variety of reasons because there there are many other things to talk to Peter about. But honestly, I haven't heard any defense of Trump that concedes his obvious flaws as a person, much less an argument for why these flaws don't matter, right? And this is is what you would have to do to defend him in an interesting way. And I I really find this alarming. I mean, the, the people who defend Trump do not admit that there's anything wrong with him. And if they have done this, I've basically missed it. It's like the most they can concede is that he's uncensored, right? And therefore will inevitably offend some people. That isn't even close to acknowledging the problem. Here's what I think is true. There isn't a single Fortune 500 company or a reputable university or any other respectable institution in this country which has a board of directors, which, three years ago, would have said the following. You know what we need to take our organization to the next level? We need a truly brilliant leader. We need someone with vision and integrity, someone who is ethical and deeply knowledgeable. We need the wisest person we can find to take us forward at this point. You know who we need? We need Donald Trump. I am confident that had those words been uttered in any boardroom in America, the result would have been derisive laughter. And there are good reasons for that. And yet now Trump is President of the United States. And all the reasons why people would have laughed three years ago are even more obvious now. But the people who support him don't concede any of his obvious flaws. They think they've rebranded his pettiness and vindictiveness and boastfulness and dishonesty and inarticulateness as some sort of 21st century virtues. When Trump stands up in front of the memorial wall of the CIA and brags about the size of his inauguration crowd, or rather brags about the size he hallucinated, or brags about how many times he's been on the cover of Time magazine, this isn't stagecraft. This isn't some brilliant manipulation of the media. This isn't some next-level communication. This is his psychopathology leaking out into the world. This is what you'd have to do to defend Trump. You'd really have to reconstrue that in a compelling way. And I don't see how that's possible. When I see Trump in moments like that, as plain as day, I see the confessions of a disordered personality. Okay, I see a child in a man's body. And so it is with his tweets. I mean, ask yourself, how would Trump look if he really were an utter narcissist and a pathological liar? If you don't believe that he is these things, the question is, how would he have to appear to be these things to you? Okay, what would constitute evidence of narcissism and dishonesty? And I think if you can get out of your echo chamber for a second and just dispassionately look at this situation, you will see that Trump could give no more evidence of these things if he tried. To put this in terms that you might more readily understand if you're a Trump fan, this is exactly analogous to the people who claim that jihadists aren't motivated by Islam. So my question to them is, What would jihadists have to say and do in order to seem motivated by their religious beliefs? I mean, talk about these beliefs incessantly, in public and in private? Claim to be motivated by religion and only religion whenever they speak? Do things that only make rational sense if a person actually believes in martyrdom and paradise? Because that's what's going on. When you ask what would constitute evidence that jihadism is directly linked to specific doctrines in Islam, you find that there could actually be no more evidence than there is. And so it is with Trump being a malignantly selfish con man. Look at his life. Look at the reflexiveness with which he lies about everything and has done so for decades. My argument is there could not be more evidence of this. And that's a problem. So if you're gonna defend Trump, you have to argue somehow that what I just said isn't true. And that's hard because again, it's one of the most obvious things ever displayed by another human being. Calling Trump a pathological liar at this point is rather like saying that Michael Jordan was a great basketball player. This is not open to much interpretation. And so it is with most of his other flaws. As I said, Trump himself is so alarming, just as a person. And the degree to which his egocentricity and lying have damaged our public conversation is so startling that I can't even worry about the theocrats he's brought with him into government. Chaos is scarier than having a government staffed by religious fundamentalists. But again, the left seems like it's going to do nothing but further empower Trump. And until the left realizes that identity politics is a dead end, it's never going to recover. And I shudder to think what will happen in this country if we have a major terrorist attack under Trump. The left's imbecilic reaction is virtually guaranteed. And then the only voice of security will be coming from Trump. Anyway, I'm going to have David Frum on the podcast soon. And... I hope he can systematically walk me through this topic, because he obviously knows much more about politics than I do. And yes, I will have Peter or someone like Peter on the podcast happily. The reason why I would like to do it with Peter is because, while I don't agree with his backing of Trump, obviously, I totally respect him in other areas. And uh, there are many other things to talk about, like artificial intelligence and the progress of technology generally and our economic future, and even religion and human values. So there's there's a lot we could talk about that wouldn't just be Trump. And I think that's probably important for the podcast. And if there's someone else I should talk to about Trump, uh, feel free to send them my way. The people who usually get suggested in this vein are some version of internet troll. Uh, I won't even name some of these people. So, actually, there's one more question here I should answer because it's related to this Muslim ban issue. Some things you've said in the past would lead me to believe that you would support a Muslim ban, whereas lately you're saying you don't support it. If you don't support a ban, yet admit that no matter how thorough we vet people, we will inevitably be importing some percentage of Muslims who will either commit bad acts or tacitly support those who do, What should our policy be with respect to Muslim immigration? So that's a good question. I understand the basis for the confusion. And as I said before about my conversation with Majid, I think we have to keep people out of our society who seem profoundly unlikely to ever share our values. And it just so happens that most of these people, the world over, are coming from a single religion. But not all of them. And no, this doesn't suggest that we need to deport American citizens who don't share our values, right? Round up all the white nationalists and Islamists and racists. And we can't do that, right? But the fact that we can't do that should make us circumspect about who we let in. So the issue is a more generic one with respect to values and beliefs and a person's goals in life. What sort of world does any given person want to live in? I don't know that much about the vetting process. It was actually just an episode of 60 Minutes last week, I believe it was a repeat, where they showed what it was like to vet Syrian refugees. And they they followed a couple of families who went through that process. And I have no reason to think, contra Trump's suggestion, that we're generally doing this badly. It certainly takes a long time And just judging from some of the families you saw in the 60 Minutes episode, who, to my eye, were obviously not jihadists or Islamists. There was one widow with her kids, right, who was not wearing a veil. If she was pretending to be a liberal, rational person, she's like a Meryl Streep-level actress. So I look at her and I say, of course this person should come to the US. Look at what she has suffered, listen to what she says she wants out of life. There's no question that people like that should be led into the country and will only add value. And this is to say nothing of the people I actually know who are liberal Muslims or former Muslims, right? People like Ayan and Majid and Azran Omani and Faisal Saeed Al Mutar and Ali Rizvi and Sarah Hader and I mean You know, not all of these people are immigrants, some of them are, but any policy that would systematically keep those people out or people like them out of our country is obviously the wrong policy. Now, will some jihadists get in or will some people get in who could later be radicalized? Sure. I think that's probably inevitable, but it's outweighed by the benefit, in my view, of having the most liberal, most secular most grateful to be out of theocracy, allowed to come in. These people are our real immune system against these bad ideas. And again, this is a war of ideas more than it is a war, ultimately. It has to be. How many people are we going to kill? That's why I'm not for any sort of Muslim ban. But that's why I'm for a truly honest conversation about what's wrong with Islam. This is the way I tried to thread the needle on Bill Maher's show, right? We have to talk about the power of ideas honestly and converge on the best ones, sufficiently criticize the worst ones. And that's why free speech is the most important thing to protect in our society. It's the only thing that allows that process of winnowing and self-correction to continue. And on that note, I will wrap up another podcast. As always, if you find this exercise of free speech useful, you can support it at samharris.org forward slash support, and that is much appreciated. Until next time. If you enjoyed this podcast, there are several ways you can support it. You can leave reviews on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can discuss it on your own blog or podcast. Or you can support it directly at samharris.org forward slash support.